You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 25. Today, we're sitting down with Karen Cooper from British Columbia to talk about what it's like to own her own fine art gallery, why she's committed to environmental preservation, photography as a tool for creating change and as a way of healing, and much, much more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hey everybody, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I'm really excited to bring you today's guest, Karen Cooper. I first came in contact with Karen through my PhotoPills Friday video series on YouTube. And once I learned more about her work, I knew she would be a great fit for the podcast. So let me give you a little background on Karen before we go ahead and roll the interview. Best known for her dramatic landscapes, Karen is an international award-winning photographer based in Vancouver who has made photographing British Columbia her passion for the last 20 or so years. She enjoys developing emerging and experimental mediums that challenge and evolve the long-standing conventions of fine art photography. No subject is altered. Every piece of her work is an authentic and ethereal representation of that moment in time. She showcases her work through the Karen Cooper Gallery, located on historic Granville Island, which is Vancouver's premier art district. Karen's work represents her declaration for environmental preservation and her deep connection to the land. Her pieces are not just invitations to appreciate natural beauty, but are also moments to understand what has and still could be lost, which is one of the many topics we discuss in our chat today. And she even turns the tables a little bit and asks me a few questions as well. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Karen Cooper. Karen, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for asking me. Yes, I'm really excited to, to chat with you. So for the listeners who are not yet familiar with your work, could you please tell us a little bit about your origin story? So. Tell us about where you're from and maybe a little bit about what your journey was like into uh, becoming a nature photographer. I um, have always been around nature. Even as a child, I grew up on an acreage with gardens and animals. And um, in the year 2000, I was in a car accident that disabled me. Wow. And I had to learn to walk again. So uh, for me to be out in nature where I felt comfortable, I would walk. And I had so many friends that would say, what did you see today? What did you see today? And I thought, well, I'll just take a camera uh, and I'll show you what I am seeing um, rather than trying to explain it, which doesn't really work with words. Right. And I started photographing where I was able to walk. I couldn't go very far. And it just grew from there until I was absolutely obsessed (laughs) with uh, showing what our natural world was for people that couldn't go very far. Yeah. uh, That were disabled in some manner. I tried to, at at the beginning, I tried to do it so that every place I went was wheelchair accessible Mm -hmm. and had facilities. And then after that, um, I did that for a good 10 years. Wow. And, and after that, I was able to go further afield and actually carry a backpack with some weight in it. So a camera or a camera body mm-hmm. and lenses. Um, and it just grew from there until I was absolutely, as I said, I was obsessed with showing people what we have in our backyard. Yeah. Oh, that's great. What what a great way to do physical therapy. <laughs> uh, it was the best because it also takes your mind off of what you're dealing with on a day to day basis. So right. Um, without that, I don't think I would be sane today. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. And I know a number of other nature and landscape photographers who, who feel that way too, that, that the, 
connecting with nature with their cameras has really brought a positive uh, mental mindset that that they didn't have prior to spending that time out in nature. And I think it focuses you on smaller things that are important. So the small little mushrooms or the moss or the fungi, you know, you start learning about them because they're absolutely fascinating and you want to know more. Yeah. And small things add to the bigger picture. Right. Which is, which is, I think, an integral part of how we try to portray our natural world in a photo. It has to be something that you understand and feel. It can't just be, you know, a little pretty postcard picture that doesn't really have the feel of what you've seen. Yeah. And, and translating that feeling is, is difficult sometimes, you know, to, to, um, you know, I, I definitely have felt that as well, where I'm, I am feeling this gratitude or awe or peacefulness in the moment and trying to figure out then how to compose it so that whoever's viewing it, who isn't there can have that same experience. Do you have any suggestions on how, how to capture that best? You have to live in the environment. I don't think you can just go in as a photographer and snap a bunch of photos in an area and leave. And yeah. think you've done it justice. You absolutely cannot do that. Yeah. Um, there are some areas that I've been going back to for 20 years. Wow. And those I think I can do justice to because I understand it. I understand what the seasons do what the um what the bears do in certain areas they're absolutely fascinating when you see uh how they change an area um so that is where we have a responsibility to for our viewers that look at photos that we I, we need to understand that we can't just snap it and and leave and think that we've done it justice because we haven't yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so your your work focuses primarily in British Columbia, which has such a rich landscape with lots of diversity. And um, as we were chatting before we hit record, I, I've only been there briefly and I've just, I cannot wait to go back. It, it is such a beautiful location. For listeners who haven't been there yet, can you maybe paint us a picture about the natural history a little bit, such as what kind of landscapes one could find there? What What is the climate like? And maybe in terms of flora and fauna as well? British Columbia is generally a temperate rainforest. So we don't get uh, along the coastline, we don't get a lot of snow. It's uh, moderate temperatures, but a lot of rainfall, which um, adds to the trees becoming absolutely huge, mm. lush environments, uh, then we get into, I think we have something like 66 different ecosystems in BC. Wow. So we have everything from uh, deserts to the temperate rainforest, glaciers. It depends on where you want to go. I naively thought I could document BC in five years. And <laughs> I was going to yeah. move on to uh, other provinces in Canada. And I believe after 20 years, I don't think I've touched it. Wow. That's amazing. I know some people feel that way about Yosemite. Yes. In yeah. California. Yeah. It's just, it's such a vast landscape that you can just keep finding more and more and more. And, and there's so many layers to dig through. And that's it. I think, I think you've, you've said it exactly as the layers that are there and the seasons changing. And again, to do it justice, you can't just run in on one season on one day and photograph it and think that it's, going to represent that area. Right. Yeah. In terms of the, the desert versus the rainforest, um, when I've spent some time up in the Yukon, which I think is more desert-like than BC, and I drove through the Yukon through uh, BC to get to Alaska, and I was amazed by, this was in the winter, I was amazed by how much more snow BC had than the Yukon, which is further north. And I think it's because of uh, the area that I was driving through doesn't have that more desert-like climate. And the highway that I was on, it literally, the snow was so high that the plows couldn't even 
yeah. uh, plow it. They were using like gigantic snow blowers, and yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> the wall of yeah. snow was like several <laughs> feet above my SUV that I was driving. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I was like, "This is so amazing!" Yeah, welcome uh, to snow. Yes. Oh, it was incredible. It just really blew my mind. The Yukon is more boreal forest, so they don't have the trees that are holding the moisture in. The moisture tends to blow off. I so see. The taller the trees here that we have, the more moisture it's holding off of the ocean. So that's why we, we get this uh, massive amount. Up north further, they get the massive amounts of uh, snow and uh, all that good stuff that goes with that. Right. Oh, that's interesting. So you are our first guest who has a fine art gallery and, and your gallery is in British Columbia. And um, I see that you also sell prints online through your website. Right. And many landscape and nature photographers who become professionals decide to go more the workshop route. And um, so I'm curious, what led you to go more the gallery route? And, you know, could you talk about maybe some of the challenges you faced when opening your gallery? Well, I didn't think I could teach people in workshops how to appreciate nature. Mm -hmm. I think that they have to be there. I think I would be just facilitating them being in nature. Yeah. And the camera equipment, I think anybody can learn that. It's yeah. that's not difficult that, you know, if you're having issues with it, you can go on YouTube and there's tremendous amount of um, help there for that. I taught myself and yeah. that, that's how I did it. So. For me, I need to show people with an actual gallery space with large images what's there. And for me, it's a joy to do that. And when you see people connect with it, that's where I want to be. I've never been good with doing interviews. Thank you, Brenda, for asking me. Sure. <laughs> I've never been good with um, kind of standing in front of people and explaining the technicalities behind an image. Mm -hmm. I think the image should speak for itself. And that's the impact that I want to make. Yeah, that's beautiful. That makes sense. So one of the print materials that I saw that you offer is called photolucence. And I had never heard of that before. So I was wondering, could you explain what they are? And um, how did you decide on including them in your product line? It's uh, photolucence is a is a trademark name to myself that I came Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it is an image that is printed on a clear material and laminated into glass. Oh. And it, it took uh, four years for us to perfect that technique so that we could use it to replace doors and windows. So oh, how about that? Yeah, it's an actual laminated glass product. So now we're able to do shower stall doors and doors and windows, and uh, we're now successful in curving it. So wow. these, these are going to be, or are now, the, the curved ones are going to be massive, huge pieces of artwork um, that will be set into uh, uh, wood that are logs that have been um, taken from the forest that have been uh, abandoned. And if a, a person comes in to clear their property off and they want to get rid of these rather than leave them uh, rot uh, or they just abandon them in the dump, we take them and now we're setting uh, artwork into them and backlighting them. Wow, that's amazing. So the, this is all stuff that with the gallery that I really enjoy doing is that back end um, invention of new things that that hasn't been done before. And it also shows our forests and our um, environment to a degree that's different than it's ever been done before. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine having that as a backlit image, it, it really makes the viewer feel more immersed in, in it. Yeah, it's completely different. You'd have to see it. I can't translate it onto the website as you can see it in real life. Hence, the gallery is the the um, mode for being able to show people these different mediums that we're using and different techniques. Yeah. And they're big. I mean, they're, some of them are five, six feet. Um, wow. The, the one that we'll be working on next is 16 feet. Oh, my gosh. Like, so uh, no idea where I'm going to put it, but it's going to be fun. To <laughs> <laughs> it out later. I imagine it's heavy. <laughs> oh, Barry. Yeah, well, cranes. Yeah. Uh, you need a crane to move it around. Yeah. So, uh, but that's that's what I like doing is the invention uh, into different 
realms to show people that this is a pretty amazing world that we live in. And uh, this is another way of appreciating it. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you primarily market your print sales? Oh, that's a good question. Um, that's, I, I'm not sure. Uh, mm-hmm. we, they're mostly local. Uh, okay. And it's been, the gallery has been going for 11 years. So we have a lot of people that come back to see it. It's that's unique. It, it's unique in definitely in Vancouver. I wouldn't say all of BC because there's other um, f- photographic galleries, but it's unique in that I'm the only woman that mm-hmm. has her own gallery and it's the only one in Granville Island as well as Vancouver. I so see. so people are interested and they will come in and over the years we have a following that will come back and see what's new. That's um, so nice. And and so marketing is mainly for people that have been into the gallery or people that have heard about it or right. they've heard about the new techniques and they're interested. So it's um, marketing is, I don't know, you probably know this as well, has always been uh, another full-time job. Yeah. On top of everything else that we do that are all full-time jobs. So right. uh, whether I'm successful or not, I, I don't know, but um, I'm sure having fun with it. So that's great. Yeah. And, you know, word of mouth and returning customers are always the best ways yeah. of and marketing. I, yeah. And I, and I get to connect with, uh, really interesting people that will just walk in off the street. And you never know who is going to walk in next from diplomats to, you know, another photographer that's, you know, photographing in Nova Scotia or just fascinating people. And this yeah. is this is what a physical space allows you to do is make connections with people that may never see it on a website or may never see it on social media. Well, and they probably spend more time with it too on like social media where you're just thumb scrolling, you know, they might be like, oh, nice image, but they're not going to really experience it the way they can in a gallery setting. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's having more of an impact in that way too, which is really great. Yeah. I see social media as a support for what goes on in the gallery. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you wanted to market yourself solely on social media, I think that was, you know, I, I, these days, I think it's almost impossible to yeah. do because there's just so much information out there and so many images that, you know, as you're saying, you thumb scroll through them and you'll see a new one every two seconds or four seconds. So, you know, how do you make an impact that way? Right, right, exactly. So we've had many guests on the show so far who have had to figure out alternative revenue sources for their businesses in order to continue uh, with the pandemic going on. Uh, but you're the first one who actually has a brick and mortar business. And so I'm curious how the pandemic has impacted your business, either positively or negatively. Well, economically, it's impacted it negatively. Um, there's no way that you can keep doors open during a pandemic and have people comfortable Yeah, to come in. Um, you know, we did everything that we had to. There's You cannot pivot a gallery as many uh, as much as you think you can. Or as other people say, well, you need to pivot. Well, there's no pivoting a gallery. It, there's there's no alternative to showing people large pieces of artwork. Right. Virtually, again, um, it just doesn't work. You know, you do a virtual art show and you look at, you still don't see the impact of standing right in front of it and moving forward and backward and right. being able to see something in person. What it What the pandemic did allow us to do was to have more time to invent and more Mm. time to perfect some of the things that we were working on and to work with other people who were also working from their closed environment and uh, to brainstorm ideas to move our ideas forward. So in that aspect, it gave me a tremendous amount of time that I wouldn't normally have to uh, move forward with the things that I had been sort of had on the back burner and didn't have time to work on. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'd like to think that there are some positive outcomes too, (laughs) you know? Well, there is. Um, I think now that things are opening up, people are really anxious to get out. Yeah, that's true. And and so are a number of people that come through the gallery every day has skyrocketed in the last uh, two to three weeks when things opened up. So 
I don't, I don't look at it as a negative. Um, in the end, it will be a positive for, I hope, for local people as well to be able to be exposed to the local artists that are um, in British Columbia, mm-hmm. um, as well as uh, a local market that I think is understated. It needs to be bigger than than it is, and uh, recognition given to local artists that are really world renowned artists that have never been able to be exposed to the local market. They're exposed maybe to an international market, which is small, mm-hmm. but the local market is uh, is something that. Uh, is quite interesting to explore as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, some photographers who want to sell their prints sometimes find themselves in this debate of creating images for themselves versus creating images that sell. (laughs) So do you make a distinction between the two? And do you find that there are some compositions or subjects that that sell better than others? Um, I do what makes me happy. Yeah. And I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty ordinary. Uh, I'm not you know, sophisticated in the art world. And I'm not, you know, I don't have all kinds of degrees that I can talk uh, art history and, and art composition. So I think I'm pretty ordinary in that aspect that if I like it, I think other people will like it. Yeah. I think if I haven't, I have a image that is impactful for me in some way, I think it will impact other people. And I've been proven right with that. That's good. Uh, I, I I try not to, even though there are places where I can't understand why people to keep taking the same photo of the same place over and over again. And when I go and see it, I think, oh, that's why, because the place is so beautiful. Yeah. You know, and you only have so many places you can stand here. So, of course, you're going to have to take a photo of that. Right. Uh, but again, it's an individual thing. Your personality comes through and how you photograph, how you edit, how you display and so that comes through. So it, it's slightly different, but I don't do the typical uh, shots that most people do. Right. Yeah. So what, what would you say that you're trying to express or reflect through your images? A reverence for nature. Mm. Um, I really want people to understand how precious it is, how it's a finite resource, if we want to put the term resource on it, which we should. Right. right. <laughs> but it's it's a finite um, environment that we need to survive and to appreciate it on a deeper level than uh, running through and taking an image and moving on. Because you can't right. you can't do it justice if you don't spend the time to understand how everything is functioning in that scene that you're photographing. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Uh, I often teach that the first step to finding a subject or finding the composition is just to slow down and connect. Exactly. Yeah. Put your camera away. Right. And then does this scene move you in some way? Does it make you feel peaceful? Does it make you feel anxious? I mean, what is it about it that affects you? And then can you now, when you take your camera out of your bag, if that's the spot that you want to photograph, how are you going to portray that to your audience? And I think that's years of practice. I don't think that's something that you can just, I don't think you can teach it. Um, I think you can bring people along that will try to emulate that, mm-hmm. uh, which if that's how you teach it, then that's the best way to do it. Um, but I think you really, have to understand the environment to be able to do it justice. Yeah, I totally agree. And I and I also agree that it takes practice, you know, that the repetition and, you know, having that experience over and over again of, of that connection of feeling moved by the nature scene in front of you um, and how to then translate it. It's the translation is difficult. Yeah, the whole translation of it's not just the image. It's how now do you take that image forward and make it an eight foot image on your wall that's going to knock people's shoes off? Right. How do you do that? And that in itself is a whole learning curve and a whole other full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you have a journal on your website and I was poking around it, uh, your website at karencoopergallery.com. And there's a quote that I found that I absolutely loved and, and would like to share if it's okay with you. Um, you wrote, quote, trees are the voices of their wilderness's secrets, the guardians of nature's deeply rooted knowledge. Exactly. And I feel like it's on one hand, such a simple statement, but it has so much meaning in it. And I, I love how you wrote it. Um, so I was wondering, can you elaborate a bit on, on what you meant by this statement? What's locked in trees is thousands and for the trees that are that old, thousands of years of knowledge of the environment that happened even before man was walking around. Mm -hmm. The ecosystems that evolved from that evolved without anything to do with man. So the knowledge that's there is incredible. Yeah. And just because we don't speak that language doesn't mean that there's not volumes of history and knowledge that are locked into and not locked into these trees, but are in these in these environments. And that's why it's so important to go in and just sit and watch it, listen to it, smell it, feel it, um, and then start taking your photos. There are places where I don't think you can photograph to any degree that will show what is there unless you experience it yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I know you feel inspired by nature. Are there any other sources of inspiration that you get for your photography? And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, how do you, once you've connected with a scene, how do you start thinking about composition? I actually don't think about it. I mean, isn't that weird? Um, no, I mean, it can be a very intuitive process. I think that's what it is. I think you've said it, the intuitive process. I think of how, um, how it looks to me and, and is it balanced? And I always, for some reason in my mind, I always have to th have things balanced. So if the scene looks balanced in some way, and I can't explain what that is even, um, then I think that's the composition that I want. Mm -hmm. So balance as in like a window, if you're looking out a window, does that feel balanced? It doesn't always feel that. Mm -hmm. So what is it about balance in my mind that works? And it's usually an, a, an element on either side, like a tree. If you're doing say a water scene, then you'll have an anchor or a balance on your left, which is a tree going into the scene of the water. Mm -hmm. So there's always some kind of balance with a heavy and heavy as in heavier than the water with a heavy object. I see. Yeah. And, and that's the only way I can explain it. If, yeah. it. if it's not there, you feel that you will just go by that image. You won't even look at it. When you, when you watch people look at artwork or images they'll always stop and spend time in front of the balanced ones. Hmm, interesting. They will never spend time in front of something that is oddly out of balance. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. The balance, uh, you know, balancing visual weight or balancing colors or, you know, things like that give off a sense of harmony. Yes. Uh, yeah. And peacefulness. It feels more restful or at ease, I guess. Versus when things, when compositions are not balanced, it might feel irritating to look exactly, at. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, I had an image I took years ago in a clear cut on Vancouver Island, which actually brought me to tears when I was photographing it. Um, and it's a spot, if you wanted to look it up, where Big Lonely Doug is left standing, this massive, huge uh, Douglas fir. And when I was photographing it, a whole fog bank moved in and it lit up what was left of the old growth in the background. And I managed to get some shots of this before it dissipated. And I was so moved by this shot and it, it was so impactful for me that I decided I was going to print it big and put it in the gallery. And I was fascinated to see how people reacted to it. And what they did was walk around it. Huh. They avoided it. 
Um, and why? Because it's it's disconcerting. It's not anything that we want to confront. Right. Uh, it's definitely nothing that we want to face because of everything else that we face in our lives. So to me, it's not always how people perceive it. It's, wow, I actually made an image that people were disturbed by. Right. And th- and I think then you've made it. I think then you've actually said, I've created something that, you know, it might never sell. But boy, it's sure going to make an impact on people's minds. If it causes people to start talking, that's great. If it causes them to be uncomfortable, then I've done my job. Yeah, that's really interesting. I have uh, had the internal debate of, you know, if we're going to use photography as a way of protecting nature in some way, should we be photographing the beauty of nature or the destruction of nature? which type of image would have a bigger impact on creating change. And what have you noticed in your work then? What, what, how people perceive one or the other, what have you noticed? Well, I honestly haven't spent time photographing the destruction of nature. I've chosen to go with the beauty of nature, Um, but it's always in the back of my, I'm sorry, I cut you off. It, Go ahead. No, it is disconcerting when you photograph the destruction. It's uh, it's disturbing. It is, yeah. And but I see the value in doing that, you know. And so it's always sort of it lingering in the back of my mind of you know maybe I should do a, a project or something that is uh, focusing on those aspects of of how how we're destroying nature. But I got into photography because I have such a strong connection to nature. And that's like you, that's what I want to inspire through my images is this uh, reverence for and appreciation of the natural world. And I feel like I can express that better than, than trying to express that same thing through images of the destruction of nature. But I can see them both having value in helping shape people's minds. So where where do you draw the line of what you will photograph. Like, where do you say, I absolutely cannot go there. I can't photograph this. It's disturbing. I don't want other people to see it. Where do you draw the line? Well, it's not that I don't want people to see it. Um, it's just that the, the, the love that I feel inside for nature, it would switch from being a positive feeling to a feeling like my heart was being torn in half feeling, right, you know? Exactly. And so, I feel like that uh, gets expressed through the image somehow. And so instead of my images inspiring people to want to spend more time in nature and appreciate it more and therefore have higher levels of respect for it and then maybe make better decisions, if I show them heart-wrenching images, right, that may just leave them feeling depressed and hopeless and that there is nothing we can do to change it. We're all doomed. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, but I don't know. I, I, it's a question I've debated, like I said, and and maybe I will do projects in that realm at some point. And I, I definitely have learned a lot from photographers who have chosen that route to to photograph humans' impact on the land and how we've shaped this earth. I, I find them very disturbing and very educational, and I appreciate that they're doing it, but. Uh, I haven't necessarily been called to do that myself. I think the photographers that do that really are special. Uh, I absolutely, I photograph it, but I can't show it. And then then I avoid photographing it because it is disturbing. Yeah. But the ones that do that, oh my gosh, they're amazing. And they still have, well, we hope they do, uh, a mental balance when they come back from doing these photo shoots of just the horrific things that men do to the planet uh, and the animals and the environment. And they come back and they're still balanced enough to show this to the world. Right. Yeah. It does take a special level of fortitude, I guess. I think so. Yeah. And then they still see the beauty in things afterwards. But um, I think it's hard to be a photographer that does both. Uh, Yeah. I think it's really difficult that balance is um, 
for myself is impossible to obtain. I can't do both. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I agree with that with myself. So I noticed that you you talked about nature deficit disorder on your website. And these are concepts that we've lightly touched upon in other episodes of the podcast, but without actually using those terms or defining them. And so I was hoping that maybe you would take a moment to describe to the listeners what is meant by nature deficit disorder and maybe what role nature photography can play in these ideas. I think nature deficit disorder is a term that's finally come into its own uh, with actually putting a label on disturbances in people's moods. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice that more, in, I don't know, if, do you live in a city? No. No. So in the city, um, I don't actually live there. I have my gallery there and I live outside of the city. But in the city, you'll notice stresses on people that are very um, seeable. You can you can notice it in people's faces and how mm-hmm. they act if they're not out getting some kind of nature. I call it a nature fix mm-hmm. to to connect again. And I I think people don't even know they're connecting. I think if you just go for a walk in the park and hug a tree, right. uh, you know, I think you're going to connect, and you might not even know it. But you come back with, as we were saying, your shoulders are down where they should be, and you know, the the stresses that you have on your mind every minute in the city are now gone. And that was never really given a name. It was never researched until the Japanese came up with that term several years ago. Um, and then they did forest bathing, mm-hmm. which is, you know, my gosh, thank you for finally putting a name on being, just being able to connect with nature in 10 minutes. Right. The, the studies show that uh, a 10-minute walk in a forest will reduce your blood pressure by so many points. And, you know, I think that's something that people like you and I know. Right. Uh, inherently, when we're out photographing, uh, it's probably one of the reasons why we do it as well. Whether you get a shot or not, you sure feel fabulous. Right. Um, but I think that is something that we are going to have to address in our civilization as we move forward is that the absence of nature is uh, a huge problem with mental illness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. I I saw a study that and I'm going to mess up the percentage, but it was very high, like 92% or something like that of people, or or maybe it was that the majority of people spend 92% of their time in a day indoors. Yes. Uh, And so we are now known as like the indoor generation, you know, where we're scary, isn't it? Yeah, it is very scary. I grew up outside. Yeah. You know, and if you ate a worm and it tastes bad, well, you know, that wasn't the right thing to do. (laughs) So uh, you learn this from nature teaches you that. Yeah. Whereas now, um, you know, there's generations that the only way they connect with nature is on an iPad. Yeah. Yeah. And there are some studies that say that, you know, like people who have have images or or in healthcare settings, just viewing nature, even through an image, can have a lot of these good health benefits as well that help patients with the healing process and that sort of thing, which is really fantastic. That's amazing that even viewing natural subjects and colors uh, can have that kind of impact. But being out in it, just like you were talking about the forest bathing, which I think is called Shinrin Yoku or something like that, uh, is engaging all of the senses. And so that has even more uh, of an impact in health and uh, mental health, which is great. And they're actually, um, I don't know if you know, but there are, I think it's called Parks RX, which is uh, certain national parks in the U.S. are now partnering with different um, healthcare groups and physicians so that they actually prescribe nature, which is amazing. So um, I can put a link in the show notes to a website that well, describes awesome. that. Yeah. Um, I did a big installation in a dementia ward in a private hospital in Vancouver. And as we were installing the images, which before that was a hallway with rooms, 
and the the uh, clients or patients each had their own room with the number on it. So we did, uh, I think there was 30 images we installed down this hallway. And the patients during the day would just walk up and down and holding on to the rail. And they didn't have a lot to look at. And they couldn't find their rooms. Hmm. So as we were doing this installation, a gentleman that would just go up and down the hallway in his wheelchair every day was now connecting to an image that we were putting up that had uh, Mount Shem, which is a mountain here with tulip fields. And for some reason, this triggered uh, memories in him. And, And he started to become engaged out of not, I'm not completely out of his dementia, but certainly engaged in part of his brain that was fascinated with the tulips. And now he was so happy that he could find his room when he wanted to go to bed because it was the room with the tulips. That's amazing. So again, when we get back to how people connect to nature, um, it's, it's inherent in us as humans that we come from nature. Mm-hmm. And this is where we're going to end up is back in nature. So um, that the images themselves are extremely powerful for connecting to people on some level. You don't know what image is going to connect to who, but on some level, we're going to connect to people. And I, I wonder, too, if it gave him a sense of place, you know, that yes. he didn't have in a blank hallway, you know, right. in this yeah. man-made environment. But now he can say, these are my tulips, <laughs> basically, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and I can find my, you know, his his comfort place was his room. He could right. find that because it was next to his tulips. And, you know, it. I have to tell you, I was in tears over that. I thought if yeah. I if I could just do that in my lifetime, I'm happy. Yeah. If I made that connection and made that man's life happy for you know, as long as he could find his room, then I've done my job. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing that story. I think people need to know that it's not just a pretty picture that you hang on the wall, that there are impacts for, uh, for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. So on your website at KarenCooperGallery.com, you include an ethics statement, which I'd like to read part of here. Mm -hmm. Uh, You wrote, Quote, my promise is to do nothing that will unduly stress any animal, plant, or ecosystem. I do not cut trees or even their branches to improve a photo. I do not bait. I do not lure. If an animal appears stressed or anxious, I will leave. Unquote. And this ethos is in line with what I wrote in the Outdoor Photography School Manifesto as basically a a declaration of values. And it also aligns with the Nature First Photography Alliance principles, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. Um, So in light of this, what responsibilities, if any, do you think we as outdoor photographers have in protecting the natural world? And uh, what ways do you think we can do that in practice, whether that's how we are behaving in the field or what we do with our images thereafter? I think photographers need to be a voice for nature. And by destroying it or cutting trees or pulling out grass or whatever you're going to do to make your picture pretty, it totally takes away from the whole idea of what we're doing. We're yeah. not trying to show nature perfect uh, as as humans see perfect. Nature's already perfect. Yeah. Uh, we have to, as a responsible photographer, photograph it so that we feel balanced with it. Mm-hmm. And that is moving around the scene. Um, that is understanding your environment. If there's animals in there that you've stressed, that's their home. Right. We're only there for five, ten, you know, minutes, maybe an hour. It's not. It's not our job to stress the animals out to get a pretty picture. Right. Nobody needs another bear shot. You know, that's doing all these great things. I mean, there's millions of them out there. Yeah. What we do need to do is respect the nature that's there. Yeah. And we need to hold ourselves accountable higher than anybody else that does this so that people can look up to us and say, thank you for showing us that in light of 
what's going on. Like mm-hmm. there's absolutely no reason to stress animals out. I can't say it enough. I'm just so, I just get livid when I see people that have baited animals yeah. um, and, and have the flashes on at night. Uh, you know, that disturbs the animals. They, they don't get flashes at night in the normal environment. Right. So, so why do you think a photo is, it warrants that? It just doesn't. Right. Yeah. It is disturbing what, what, what lengths people will go through in order to get the photo. And, and you know, and that's not, uh, the, the, I feel like it's sort of losing sight of the point of why you would want to create it in the first place. Exactly. And the the trend has been lately, over the last, I would say, maybe five years, to get the shot, to get, you know, the most gruesome shot of a lion killing something or, you know, to get the the amazing shot of an owl hunting at night. Um, you know, all these shots that, yes, they might be pretty, but when you walk away, what impact have you had on those animals? Right. What impact have we left that they've now been disturbed. Um, I've seen shots of people shining lights on Rocky Mountain sheep at night that are trying to sleep. Um, Mm -hmm. So you disturb them and now they're going to move and it's night. So what are they going to do? Fall on the road? I mean, to me, that's like, why, why are we revering these kind of shots? They should not be revered. Yeah. And it, and the respect for the animal is just gone. It's gone. And it's it becomes a shot. It becomes a photo. It doesn't become something that you can respect. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't hang something like that on my wall. Right. And it probably loses the story of the animal because it's not in its, it's, not in its natural state. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't see any owls that fly through uh, anything at night that get uh, flashes. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I've never seen that in a natural environment. I mean, they're hard to see at night, which is pretty cool. That's the whole fun of it. Right. That's, that's their whole, their whole uh, camouflage um, aspect that they have. So, you know, I, I'm not going to go in there and start shining lights on them so I can photograph them better. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll get slammed for that. Absolutely. I'll be having the email coming in any day now because I've said this, but I think we have to stand up uh, for our morals and ethics and say, like, it's just a shot. It's, you know, it's your ego that uh, needs the stroking here, not the not the owl. Right. It doesn't further the owl's outcome or life or ability to procreate or live or safely hunt. Or, or hunt. Hunt, right. Yeah. They, they, all of a sudden now their whole eyesight is uh, gone for a few seconds while they have to readjust and the prey that they were after is gone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this sort of brings me to my next question, which is in what ways do you think social media and advanced post-processing techniques have influenced the public's perception of nature or the landscape and of nature photography as an art form? Um, boy, that's a huge question. Um, I think social media has its good and bad points. Uh, social media is, uh, again, um, can be a game that you're going to one up the next person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you always have to have the better shot than somebody else. It always has to be, you know, different locations or the same location and better, better light. It's a game. Um, I don't, play it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't really work at trying to get followers and all that um, because I don't think that's where I want to go. Um, Mm -hmm. It's more of part of the package of a marketing package that I used. But again, it's not how I want to impact people with another shot um, unless I'm making a statement about, you know, what's going on up here right now with a very Creek blockade. I'll make a statement with that. Um, but it, it, I, my ethics is not to portray something that's not real. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of post-processing techniques out that are, you know, when you look at it, you go, wow, that's just really impressive. But I won't be able to go there and see that. Right. Because it doesn't exist. The basic part of it might exist. 
but how it's been done, processed, doesn't exist. Now, that is an art form in itself, which is absolutely stunning. I won't, I'm not taking away from that. It's mm-hmm. just not what I do. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I agree with that. I'm in a similar positioning. I'd rather create an image or I, I get much more enjoyment out of creating images that are natural reflections of what I actually experienced and not, you know, a, a composite of several different types of light or weather or different even aspects of the landscape. I actually don't even know how to do those types of processing <laughs> techniques. Um, I was just going to say, I'm glad I'm not really great at Photoshop because I don't even know how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I use Photoshop for post-processing, but not in that way. But it is absolutely incredible what people can create through these techniques, really fascinating landscapes and nature scenes. And I guess, you know, sort of getting back to what you were saying earlier about people wanting to one up each other on social media, I think it has contributed a little bit to that one upping effect where a natural landscape uh, isn't enough to... Exactly. Yeah, which is too bad because I think for people who aren't photographers who are consuming our images on social media, I I wonder whether they're just getting a false sense of what's reality and what to expect. And and then when they go out in nature, they're kind of disappointed. And then it sort of contributes to that perpetual lack of respect for nature or any desire to, to preserve it in some way. Exactly. And and you can't Photoshop nature. Right. Nature's just nature. For instance, the um, supermoon that was out the other night that took, thank you, Brenda. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I managed to get some absolutely fabulous shots of the supermoon. And I thought, oh, I'm going to put one up on uh, Instagram. And one of the comments came back as, oh, nice Photoshopping. Oh, good grief. Well, okay. So... Because, and this is, I think, my pet peeve is that we've seen so much photoshopping. We've seen so much fake images and, you know, moon rising in the the wrong horizon kind of thing. Right. That we expect anything that's a really, really amazing shot that you spent a lot of time trying to get. Right. um, Is now faked. Right. To me, that's shocking that we just see so much of it that when you see it for, what is real, you actually think that's faked. Right. Yeah. People have come to expect it to be fake. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Which is so too bad because when it is real, it's like, no, see, this is amazing. Again, (laughs) you had to be there. Yeah. Watch this whole phenomena of this moon, super moon rising above the horizon. It's just enormous. And the color changes every 10 seconds, the colors changing and I mean, that's the whole thing is you have to be there to see it. Right. And then the image is just incidental. It might be, it will never capture what you really saw because you're in a whole environment that's adding to what you're seeing. And an image is only part of that. Right. Uh, well, I know. speaking of Instagram, I, I noticed on your Instagram account that you don't include location information. In fact, you have cleverly put in locations like earth or nature or home. And um, I like that. So can you tell us why you've decided not to be more specific with location information? And have you received any pushback for that? Uh, I haven't received absolutely no pushback of anything. It's uh, the opposite direction. Um, I I made the mistake when I first started uh, many years ago of telling people the locations that I was going to and I soon became extremely disillusioned with the morals and ethics of people that would two things, a completely copy an image right from pretty well where you were standing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that to me was not the reason I was sharing the location. It was for them to see it in their own light, in their own aspect. Right. And the other aspect B of that is there's just too many people with no respect for nature. Yeah. So there's areas that I did share years ago that I now will not go back to because of the uh, disrespect for what's there, the garbage, the, you know, the trampling of the uh, off the pathway um, nature, 
you know, just that disrespect. So I'm, I'm uh, quite adamant about this is what I see here. And if you want to connect to that, I will show you where it is or tell you where it is. But I absolutely will not tell a, a wider audience where it is. It's just that's not what it's there for. It's there to be respected and revered, not another, you know, selfie in the middle of somewhere. Isn't this wonderful? And you move on and throw your garbage down on the way out. Right. So I think there's a movement on now for people not putting the locations up. Yeah. And that is one of the principles for the Nature First Photography Alliance. Um, they they say that to use discretion when sharing locations. Um and, you know, so people are trying to figure out for themselves sort of what that means exactly. Does that mean absolutely no, inf- like, I should I say this was taken in Vermont or Earth? You know, like how how specific right, do you right. get? And um, and I actually recently had the experience that got me thinking about this a little bit more, which was I recently had an exhibit hanging in our uh, local cancer center. And when I was hanging it, one of my images is of a secluded waterfall that I discovered while hiking through the wilderness. So yeah, off the beaten path, just uh, out in the wilderness. And it's one of my favorite images. And so I was really excited to print it and have it as part of the exhibit. And as I was hanging it, this woman passed by and she, you know, said nice things. And that was really kind. And then she said, I'm going to find that waterfall someday. Oh, and I just broke my heart. I was like, oh, <laughs> it's not just digital medium where we have to be worried about this. And I didn't have the location. I don't actually even know exactly where it, I know how to find it through the woods, but I don't, I don't know where it is in terms right. of on a map, really. I mean, I, I, I could find it on a map, but I don't know. But you're not uh, going to. <laughs> no, I'm not going to. And um, so I, I had only said, you know, the Green Mountains of Vermont. Uh, was as specific as I got in the title caption for the image. And and she didn't look like someone who who would go try to find it. Like she wasn't like a very outdoorsy person. Right. Um, so I wasn't too worried about it, except that I was like, oh, like I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that by having a, a physical image, a print, that people would... Uh, still, you know, like, yay, I'm glad that they want to go experience this. But now I don't want a whole bunch of people exactly, you know, trampling their way through exactly. woods that don't have a trail. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, so anyway, it just got me thinking a little bit more deeply you, about that. Because you want to hold this location close in your heart. This is important. This was a connection that you made. And you might be able to share that through a print, but you don't want to share that with, you know, 500 other people that don't appreciate what it is that they're really looking at. Right, exactly. Because it's not the waterfall. That's not the point. The point was that experience of discovering this Absolutely. beautiful part of nature. Yeah. And, yes. and and the magic of that. Not this is an incredible waterfall that everyone needs to see. You know, it wasn't exactly. the subject itself. It was it was the experience. Exactly. And that's yeah. how you portray that through your image has to make the impact and not the location itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you see the the field of landscape photography in the next 20 years, 10 or 20 years or so? Oh, I wish I had a crystal ball. Yeah. Uh, I I hope that it gets better. Mm-hmm. I hope um I actually do see it getting better. Um better as in more people are appreciating a landscape as opposed to the uh, you know, the epic animal shots or the, um, I don't know, just epic. Everything has to be epic. I, yeah. I like calm. <laughs> Give me calm. Right. right. I, I, I'm done with epic. Um, I think more people are becoming too appreciated because I see more of my work going into offices, um, medical offices, hospitals, uh, places that are stressful um, that I think people are within themselves connecting and wanting to calm, be calm with these images. Mm-hmm. And, and I see that only as people start appreciating nature, the more we're losing it, I see them more uh, able to connect with it and wanting it to be 
part of their environment. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. I like that outlook. Keep it up, Brenda. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a lightning round? What is a lightning round? Like, uh, I'm going to ask you a bunch of quick questions and you just answer, say the first thing that comes to mind. You're really asking for it. Boy, that, could be, that could be really bad. Um, it, it will, it, it'll be easy. No worries. Okay. All right. Okay. okay. Are you ready? I've had coffee, so we're good. Okay, good. Okay. Um, so what is your favorite subject to photograph? Trees. And those are some of my favorite images of yours. So I agree. Uh, what is one piece of advice you would give a nature photographer aspiring to become a professional? Respect nature. Yes. In your opinion, what is the best light to photograph in? There isn't one. Uh, it, mm. depends, it depends on your environment. It's yeah. the best light for the environment, not, not what we want the best light to be. Yes. Oh, I totally agree with that. Uh, yeah. Why photography and not another art form? For me? Mm-hmm. Um because I can't do anything else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a terrible artist. Uh, I can't. Well, you, you are a great artist, right? You're well, a good photographer. So, well, I can't draw, I can't do anything else. So, uh, this is, uh, I think this is a, for me, a more impactful way of, uh, showing what, what's out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. It's a more real way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and last question, what does connecting with nature mean to you? Uh, it's life. Yeah absolute life. And I, I get to ask a question now, what is nature for you? Ooh, no one's yeah, asked me. <laughs> I, get, I get the lightning round now. Oh, gosh. Uh, for me, connecting with nature is, it, it has always been ever since I was a kid, that was how I felt centered. So, you know, if I was stressed out with school and homework and all that, you know, stuff that you go through in middle school and high school and whatnot. For me, the way I dealt with it was I would go out in nature and go for walks and just observe and sort of study how nature was resilient. And, and it would give me so much hope. And that's, I think, continued. And, and that's, it's that connection, that feeling of oneness uh, with nature as as sort of like re-identifying and finding myself again has has been really uh, healing for me. Right. So, oh, that's a great word, healing. Yes. Yeah. 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 And and so I get another lightning round question. Okay. Okay. Um, how do you balance your amazing career with photography with life, other life? It is is part of life, but how do you balance it? It's a challenge. Um, part of it is I get up at about 4.15 in the morning so that I have a couple of hours before my daughter, who's two and a half, wakes up to, to get some work done. And that could be anything from researching for the podcast to, you know, just studying different aspects of photography to help me further my own understanding and, and skills so that I can then hopefully teach that more comprehensively. And I have a really supportive partner, uh, which helps me have time to at least once a week, I, it's always a big bonus if I can go out more than once a week to uh, do photography. And that could be anything from all day, morning to night, traveling all around with with specific uh, locations in mind, or it could be what I uh, like to call woozles where I'm just sort of like, I don't know where I'm going today. Right. You know, yeah. I, I'm just going to wander around and see what I see. And I'll, you know, think of a few hikes along the way that I might want to try to do and see where that leads me. And, and sometimes, you know, I'll have a whole loop mapped out of where I want to go. And I never leave the first place that I go because I'm having so much fun right. in that one spot. Right. So yeah, I, I'm, it's definitely a lot to juggle. But I've been working hard on trying to find a balance. <laughs> so people may notice that I've like, for instance, I'm doing the podcast right now, but I'm not making any videos on YouTube. So it's it's hard for me to fit both in. So I sort of pick things to prioritize. And which do you like doing the best? Like, what do you get the most joy from? Certainly 
photography, do, doing my own photography. I I would say second to that is teaching. I really do enjoy uh, explaining and helping people sort of have that aha moment and seeing them connect a dot that maybe they didn't quite understand before. I get a lot of joy out of that. And and then this podcast has been really incredible. I've so enjoyed getting to know people and connecting with other photographers and hearing their stories. And and then I for Tidbit Tuesdays, I you know, I ask people to submit questions and I answer them. And that's been really fun because some of them I don't have answers right away. So I do some research and and then it's helping me grow as a photographer as well. Great. So, um, so far, I've been just absolutely loving doing the podcast. And uh, it seems like it's having a positive impact, which is really great. Oh, it's awesome. Absolutely awesome. And you've connected with so many different people in so many different aspects uh, yeah. that it's bringing a whole different uh, realm of understanding into a word photography, which is a huge word. but it seems small. Right. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad that you're enjoying it. <laughs> oh, what a hoot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm so glad that you agreed to come on the show, even though, you know, interviews aren't your thing. I, I think you did oh, great. No. This was such fun chatting with you and and hearing about uh, your gallery and that deep connection that you have with nature. I'm so glad that you shared that with us. So thank you. Well, thanks for asking me. Absolutely. So if people wanted to learn more about your gallery and your photography, what would be the best way for them to find you? Um, they can go to the website uh, or email me uh, info at KarenCooperCallery.com. And I'm happy to share uh, anything that they are interested in, uh, except locations. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to help uh, people that need help with whatever they are doing or I can send them your way Brenda because you're better at that than I am <laughs> I don't know about that <laughs> uh, well that sounds great and I'll put links to your website in the show notes for sure and, and okay. anything else that came up today that we talked about so well, well thank you again Karen this was really great thanks Brenda all right I hope you enjoyed that interview with Karen and again you can find out more about her work and her gallery at KarenCooperGallery.com Again, thank you, Karen, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for sticking around until the end. I appreciate you. And I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. All of the links and other relevant information we talked about today can be found in the show notes at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode 25. And I just wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who has already left a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I read them all and I appreciate it so much. So thank you. These reviews help the podcast reach new listeners, and they also show potential guests that we have an engaged and happy listenership, which makes it even more inviting for them to take the time to come on and share their expertise. And I also want to thank everyone who has helped support the show through buying me a coffee in the link in the show notes, which helps me cover the cost of producing the podcast. So I am grateful to all of you for helping me make this possible. We have Scotland-based landscape photographer Alistair Ben coming up on the podcast to talk about expressive photography, his luminosity and contrast theory, and how to cultivate creativity. And shortly after that, we'll have Texas-based landscape photographer and personal coach Bree Stockwell on the show to chat about her unusual journey into landscape photography, setting goals, and how reframing your mindset can improve your photography. So be sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss out on these or any upcoming episodes. And I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll answer some of your submitted questions and also give you some tips on photographing the upcoming fall foliage. And so until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care. <laughs>